Last year, I sat down and decided to learn Sinatra, which is the other Ruby web framework. And I wrote an application and it was a lot of fun. I remember super easy framework to use. And I remember thinking at the time, anything this easy is going to come back to bite me somehow. I just know it. And so I threw together an application. I wanted to see how it would work. In fact, I was using TechPub as a guinea pig. And I remember I was trying to do some user authentication work and I decided I needed to work with cookies. And so I was sending cookies down to the browser and then reading them back and all of a sudden it just stopped working. I mean, it had been working, but then it just stopped working for no reason at all. And I think, you know, we've all faced issues like that. We've all faced bugs that just come out of nowhere and you can't remember what it is you changed. What did I do? I, I must have somewhere along the line changed a variable somewhere. And I thought about, you know, going to source control and just reverting. But then all of a sudden something took hold in me. I would not do that. I had to find out what was this bug from. I remember the look on my wife's face when she came in my office because uh, I had been working at home and she had heard a loud bang and she wanted to come in and see if I was okay and I remember at the time I had a very silly look on my face uh, some would call it sheepish because I had just slammed my fist on my desk and I was yelling at my computer I was proclaiming that it was impossible that it was doing what it was doing I was quite sure that my computer was wrong. Even though intellectually, professionally, every possible way I knew that that was not the case. I was wrong. But that did not matter at all. Caveman is writing the code now. I remember when I finally found the bug, it wasn't a feeling of victory, because that's usually what I feel when I, you know, find a bug and slay the bug. And people come up with all kinds of combat metaphors uh, when it comes to tracking and killing bugs. But I didn't feel it, though. I didn't feel like I just slayed some kind of dragon. What I felt was let down. I felt exhausted. I felt tired. And I remember staring at the solution. It was a simple one. I was not using the path correctly. And I remember just staring at it thinking, I, I knew that. And I actually got, I think, even more angry because I had wasted hours and hours, literally about two and a half, three hours. And it was about 10 at night. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking at the time, I should have just gone to sleep. I mean, I should have just gone and had a beer or I don't know what, walked away from my computer. And in thinking back on it now, it seems obvious. And saying this to you now, it seems perfectly obvious. Uh, thinking back on it now, I'm more or less just upset at myself. You know, problem solving skills are something you have to work on. And the way you deal with the problem has a lot to do with who you are as a developer, as a coder, and as such is perfect fodder for this week's This Developer's Life. 
have three storytellers today for you. The first is a Ruby developer who practices Zen-like problem-solving skills, basically saying there is no spoon. Second developer is a Microsoft developer. We talk about the bug swarm, what happens when teams take on problem-solving. And the final story we have for you today, what happens when an immovable dev meets an unstoppable bug? You know, it just didn't work. And it was really simple VB. There is nothing, there is really nothing that we could have done to protect ourselves from the, v, the VB5 DLL, you know, just didn't work. That's Mike Moore, a Ruby and Microsoft developer talking about a bug he encountered with ASP Classic integrating with COM, VB5 and 6. Oh man, you know, this is going to be good. Microsoft said, you know, a great way to encapsulate a lot of your logic and get a lot of performance is to take your business logic out of your ASP pages and put them into VB5 mm -hmm. components, right? And so I remember we rewrote the entire application and put all of our business logic in the VB5 components. And the thing leaked like a sieve. Like we could not get that thing to perform. And after, I think, 12 hours, we had to roll back completely. Ouch. Been there. I remember that exact article. I remember the exact guidance that you were supposed to kick up Visual Basic 6 and put your business logic in there and use the full power of VB as opposed to using VBScript that is the code language you use for ASP Classic. And I did that. I put data access, everything, into VB5, VB6, and my application crashed through the floor. It's not an easy thing to figure out. My solution at the time was just to toss it. I asked Mike, what did you guys do? How'd you deal with it? I think too often, you know, we're driven to figure out why things happen. But when you get to like a production situation, I think that the more pragmatic approach is gonna win out most of the time. And so it doesn't really necessarily matter why something's happening. The most important thing is to roll back and to get off of whatever version of, you know, whatever the change was that caused the bad behavior. Ah, uh, yes. Who cares why it's happening? Fix it. Get it done. Go backwards. Retrace your steps. Logical approaches. Something I know as a developer that I need to do. And something I completely threw out the window when trying to solve my own problem. Mike, however, is a little bit more disciplined. It doesn't really matter why things go bad. You just need to fix it. And, you know, it really sucks when you get in a position where you can't do that, you know? So it's not, those situations aren't necessarily the worst, like, you know, hardest problem to debug. It's just, you don't have any other option. Like you have to fix it because it's in production and you can't roll back. And that kind of sucks. I think we were pretty confident in the code and it ended up just being something that was outside of our control, right? So it sounds like the energy of the situation sort of dissipated that you guys, I mean, you dealt with a problem at hand and now that you know you, you knew the problem was coming from your comm stuff, did anybody in the team say, let's go back and troubleshoot this? I mean, you know, you read the article, you saw the thing that, you know, Microsoft says, this is the way to do it. I mean, did you guys try and fix it? Yeah, we, uh, I don't think we ever tried it ever again, to be honest with you. I think we tried some VB6 stuff, but after the, the horror of VB5, I think we were 
a little too gun shy about it. I used to describe programming as telling the computer what to do. And the problem with programming is the computer is just a really good listener. You know, I also think too, a lot of the problems that we run into when we're dealing with code are, are really due to lazy thinking, right? We just, we're not disciplined enough to think about the, the problem correctly. So you're okay just letting go and walking away and not seeing if this is some problem that could have, could have been fixed? Well, you, you have to let go. I mean, this is a skill as well, right? Like you have to be able to be willing to say, I'm not solving this problem. I'm going to leave now, right? I'm going to let someone else take over and just kind of walk away from it. it it's very difficult to do. I'm not saying that it's like easy and, you know, everyone should be able to do it without thinking about it. Because the thing is, is that you are going to think about the problem, right? And you are going to obsess about it. Everyone does. The question is, is how are you spending your time? Absolutely. And it's more than a question. It should be a guiding motivation. However, it's something that just does not come to mind when you're chasing a problem down. You need to solve these things. Can't let this bug beat you. Can you? So walk me through this a bit, at least in terms of your experience, and you know, you're dealing with a bug. Let's just say it's this VB bug. Um, what do you do? Do you, I mean, do you go to a place to sort of vent your brain a little bit and and relax, and hopefully the problem will come to you, or maybe the ability to walk away? Where do you go? So what do you do? I don't necessarily have a, a place where I go. Um, the activities that I like to do usually involve having lots of little wins or something that I can improve on or improve myself on. Um, so one of them that I, I've been enjoying a lot the last six months has actually been table tennis. And I don't know if you've ever really played table tennis, but um, we had one at the place I used to work at. You mean like ping pong? Like ping pong. And I got into it in the biggest way. And I just really, really enjoyed the strategy and the physicality of it, you know? Um, and this isn't kind of like your, uh, I mean, last time I played ping pong was, I was 12 and it was against my cousins and none of us were really very good. There's a surprising amount of strategy and skill involved in something like ping pong. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you can do quickly. You get that, you know, immediate win. You know, you can play a game in five minutes. And if you lose, you can play another game in five minutes and hopefully improve it. And so, you know, just something that kind of challenges you and pushes you in ways that you're not normally pushing yourself on at work, I think is, is a great thing. You know, you, you use your mind and use your body in a slightly different way. And when you come back to it, your perspective is just altered enough that you can usually see what you weren't able to see before. It's interesting um, in listening to you, you're, you're talking about, you know, a challenge to yourself and, and getting little wins and doing something that, you know, is easy and you're good at. It almost sounds like you're talking about confidence building exercises, like getting your mojo oh, absolutely. back. Absolutely. I mean, you have to manage that, right? Life is hard enough, right? Um, you have to give yourself the little victories in life. And if you're not doing that, then just, I don't know, I think you'd be a really sad kind of a sad person, you know? Dealing with bugs, especially bugs of your own making, is no fun. And I felt it before. It can really dent your confidence as a developer and make you feel dumb, pretty much. So all of this is understandable. Get up, walk away, have the discipline to stop 
beating your head against a wall. All of those things seem pretty straightforward. So I kept trying to press Mike, basically saying, yeah, I mean, all that advice is great. The little wins, sure. But what do you do when you're faced with a problem that you have to solve? How do you prepare for it? What do you do to kind of get yourself up? So let's go back to this calm thing. You know, you're just put you in a time machine, give you a little curveball here. You're in a time machine. Microsoft wants you to go and solve this memory leak problem so they can understand and they can fix VB. So how do you do this? What do you do to solve a problem that has plagued you? So that's an interesting curveball. And I'm going to throw the curveball back at you and say that we were solving the wrong problem to begin with. So it doesn't really matter how we would solve the problem, right? The whole idea was faulty, right? The whole idea of trying to increase performance of our application um, by prematurely optimizing the performance characteristics by putting everything in calm was a faulty conclusion. When Mike was answering that question at the time when I was talking to him, I was about to protest. I was basically going to call foul. No, you can't get out of this one. You have to solve this problem. But then I realized I was sort of acting out the same dialogue I had with myself when I was trying to solve my Sinatra cookie issue. And Mike, right there in the interview, acted exactly the same way as he was telling me he would have acted in that situation by saying, no, I won't solve it because there is no problem to solve. And, you know, in thinking about it later, I realized that was probably the wisest answer he could have given me for this entire interview. That sometimes when you come up against a problem, you will focus a lot of your internal machinery on that problem. Things uh, like your ego and things about you, you know, I need to solve this. Perhaps you're an aggressive type, you're type A, you don't want to be proven wrong, you have lack of confidence, who knows? All of that goes into problem solving. It seems that once you master that, once you master yourself, you're able to more clearly see the problem. And in many cases, like Mike did here, realize there actually wasn't a problem. We didn't even need to solve this thing. Uh, We were trying to chase down this performance issue we didn't even have. And it made me think back to so many problems that I've faced, so many bugs that I've been trying to kill, and I've realized I don't even need this thing. Why is it here in the first place? Mike Moore is a Ruby developer. You can read more from Mike up at blowmage.com, which is actually pronounced blomage. I asked him the origin of blomage, and he said it had something to do with fromage, and he just liked the word.
there's a lot of interesting psychology at play when you're solving a problem as a developer. What happens when you multiply you by, well, more of you? Or even worse, other people. What happens when you get a bunch of egos together, a bunch of yes, we can and no, we can't, and all different kinds of attitudes together in a group to solve a particular problem? That's what our next story is all about. Damn it, we're not going to spend, you know, be here as long as it takes. And um, I guess at that point, it really wasn't because of the problem, right? It was because because I wanted to, I wanted to succeed. I wanted to have a win for myself and the team. That's Javier Lozano describing a scene that is probably familiar to everyone. The all-nighter. What happens when the product you're about to ship or have shipped all of a sudden just stops working or you have a bug that pretty much crashes the user experience? All hands on deck. Come on, gang. Let's slay this bug. I've been part of this a lot. And, you know, sometimes it actually works. Sometimes you pull it together. The team comes together and you actually fix the problem. Other times, it just doesn't work. So I asked Javier, when you did this before, did it ever work? You know, thinking back about it now, would I have done the same thing? No, I wouldn't have because it honestly didn't make a difference at the end. Um, but it was kind of one of those that it, it wasn't it wasn't for me, it was for everyone. I wanted everyone to say, yes, we tackled this together, it sucked, but, you know, band of brothers, we move forward, this is all great, and um, it sort of builds that camaraderie, right, that, that every team yearns for and, and wants to have. It's interesting, as Javier is explaining this to me, I began to wonder how many managers actually use these all-nighter situations as team-building exercises. I mean, you can take your team out to lunch, you can go bowling, various other things, but nothing really matches facing a known foe together. As Javier said, band of brothers. Even more curious is if I think back to the times where I had to pull the all-nighter, I can't remember at all the thing I was trying to fix. I just remember being with the team. And this actually happens a lot when you ask someone, hey, remember when the team came in? Remember when you had to pull the all-nighter? What were you guys trying to fix? I don't know. And I bet you if you ask the team members now, if you get them together, I mean, like several years after, um, they will be, they'll think the same way. It's like, yeah, you know, we, we got it done. It, was, it wasn't pretty, but you know, was it important? No. It was important, more important for us to do it and, and build that, that strength around us and making sure, hey, we, you know, as a team, we can accomplish anything. And we did all this, we did that rather than just you know, throwing it away at that point. So you've got managers that want to build camaraderie and you have team members that want to feel like they're part of a team, part of a movement, part of a thing. This is sort of a volatile mix of emotions and egos and needs. Sometimes you have to think, do they really want to solve the bug? Do they really want to fix the bug? Or do they just want to hang out? To take this one step further, when you get everybody together, do you think it's possible for them to prolong the bug itself so that they can hang out longer together? And maybe the manager just looks the other direction when more bugs creep in because that's exactly what happens. 
In fact, the team seems to be perpetuating itself because they want to hang out together. So I asked Javier, has he ever seen anything like that before? Yeah, um, and uh, honestly, I, I think teams more often than not do that because um, it, it kind of helps you prove not the team uh, as, as a whole, but members of the team. So remember, uh, it's sort of it's, it's an individual member of the team could say, "Oh yeah, well let's you know, let's tackle it this way." So you know, so we will figure out if it's if it's, a, it's a memory leak or whatever you know, or whatever the context might be. And simply, that's all it's doing. It's setting up the context for that individual, saying that, "Hey, I as an individual, as a member of the team, have contributed forth. Now all of you must step forward and do that." So it's 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 more of I hate to use the word or the expression ego check, but essentially saying everybody's drawing the line, right? Saying okay, here's my line, and I I contributed this and I contributed that, and everybody's trying to behind the scenes kind of outdo each other just to kind of prove their value. Mathematicians have long been trying to figure out swarm theory, where you put a bunch of fish together in a group and all of a sudden they start swimming together. And maybe they'll all of a sudden change direction together. It's almost as if the group of fish act as one with a single motive. The same thing with birds and same thing with a swarm of bees. It's almost as if the group has a consciousness and it is acting on its own accord. You become, for lack of better words, a code soldier awaiting your orders. And those orders come from the group. And that group may or may not want to solve the bug, but what it does want to do is stay together. Social creatures, tribal creatures, we like being together, feeling that someone's got our back. And a lot of times, that will take the entire effort sideways. Well, more likely now, you're probably introducing even more problems again, because it's you know, it's 2 a.m. and everybody's like, oh, oh we got to do this, we got to do that. And I don't care, it's just introduce this piece of code there. Hey, did it did it break it? No, okay, obviously must have fixed it. No, okay, more code. You know, change this, change that. And you're again stuck in that rut. But now now it's a bigger rut because now you get everybody stuck in it, rather than just yourself. It, it's it's something that I don't think we we can ever get out of um, just because of it's when you're green, it's more of like I can solve this. I spend enough time, I can do this. And once you're old and and you've been in this the system for a little bit longer, sometimes you just kind of want that small challenge. Do, do I still have? Can I still run the mile under ten minutes? And you're getting through that three quarters and you're huffing and you're puffing. And you're like, why the hell did I do this? And at that point, you bail out and say, well, you got three quarters in. I could have done it. Or, or you say, the hell with it. I'm going to do it. And then the next thing, you end up in the emergency, emergency room with a pull hamstring. Javier Lozano is a Microsoft developer that lives in Des Moines, Iowa, leads a couple of user groups there. His blog is up at LozanoTech, tech with a K, dot com forward slash blog.
So far, we've talked about facing problems as an individual and also as part of a team. What happens when you can't do either one, can't solve it yourself, and the team won't help you solve it at all? Our next storyteller talks exactly about that in rather extraordinary circumstances. Hi. So, yeah, so we have had this horrible technical problem. Um, the project we work on has, uh, it's pretty complicated. And what we do is we're working on software to support planetary robots that do exploration. Yes, you heard correctly. She programs robots that travel on other planets. My name is Tamar Cohen. I work at NASA Ames Research Center. I'm part of the Intelligent Robotics Group, and our group does a lot of work with planetary robots, planetary rovers that do exploration of our planet and um, will eventually hopefully go to other planetary bodies to do exploration. My particular role is software to communicate with these robots, tell them where to go and see where they went and learn about the planets that they've explored. It's a really, really, really fun job. Think your job is stressful? This last time you wrote a bug that flipped out a $500 million piece of hardware. That's what Tamar does. She writes software that tells these rovers where to go, what to do, what they're seeing. That's some high pressure. We have a, a 3D environment um, in, on, on the computer. Uh, we build our products on Eclipse. And they're also cross-platform. So what we do is we load KML files that represent the terrain, that a little bit that we know about the terrain. And we use that kind of as the base map for our 3D model that we're driving around. So just to quickly catch you up, KML is a file format, interchangeable, open standard, that allows you to share geographic information uh, between various applications like Google Earth, which Tamar uses, uh, also AutoCAD and other 3D rendering uh, software. And it allows you to model terrain. Uh, You can do points, lines, images, polygons, all kinds of stuff. And uh, so what Tamar has to do is she has to read in these KML files, translate them, and uh, tell the robot what it's looking at, essentially. Oh, $500 million robots, Java, XML, 3D rendering. What could possibly go wrong? The problem that we hit is that when we load a complex, um, kind of a pyramid of complexity uh, for the KML, we have memory leaks on various platforms. Um, and this this problem gets um, really fun because I'm not the only one working on this, of course, and we're using um, third-party software um, to help us with the 3D library. And, you know, of course, I do my part of the software and it works fine on the platform that I'm working it on and it works fine for the test cases that I'm using. And I check it in and then somebody from another NASA center tries it out and they freak out because um, memory leaks everywhere. 
so so yeah so uh, uh load it in and it it looks great and i say woohoo you know i can i can load this really complicated kml file spread the news and and the people um at other centers i tend to work on a mac and our group tends to work on linux and then for example people down in Texas and Florida tend to work on Windows. Go figure. And um, and so they load it in, and they say basically, oh, we, we don't see any images from the texture maps at all. Like, what's going on? This doesn't work at all. So then comes the debugging process, and and so this to me this was a pretty complicated problem, compounded by the fact that um, people are stressed out, and so they like to point fingers, and so they say, oh well, you know, tomorrow since you provided this. Uh, capability, this is your fault that it has a memory leak. You know, Java handles um, all your memory for you, so you're not supposed to have to worry about it, and it's always supposed to just work perfectly. Um, and of course, it, it wasn't. We write our own software that reads the same files that Google Earth reads. Okay. So, so it's actually, it's. I mean, we do we do use some kind of some amount of testing with it but again for this kind of testing it doesn't really lend itself so much to unit testing because you know you have to load something into a 3d environment and then drive around and then look for results visually okay. so it's kind of manual testing your job you literally work with rocket scientists people that build robots and rockets that are supposed to go to other planets and you're writing the software you want some pressure it's unbelievable how do you debug something like this so what i first looked at first of all i had to um run a virtual machine of the operating system that has the problem on my computer the problem happened on various versions of windows so what I did is I started using, um, I did some heap dumps and I started using some memory analysis tools to see, you know, what's actually leaking, what's, what's, using, what's using my memory that's not going away. And what I ended up discovering is that it's, it was, um, even though these images were marked as, we're done with you, you know, go ahead and free yourself. And I could, I could print out uh, finalized calls, like right before I was out to, about to free it. They weren't getting freed. Um, it was just kind of, for some reason, sticking around. So we put in some heavy-handed sledgehammer, free this anyway, code. So the problem really hasn't been solved yet. We have a workaround of you know forcing forcing memory to be freed. The problem's been around for about six months now. <laughs> um, since then, we've upgraded to a new version of Eclipse, standardized a new, on a new version of Java. So Tamar ends up finding the bug and confirms that there's really nothing she can do about it. Because it's not just one bug, it's the combination of three different things. She's working with the Java language, of course. She's also working with a third-party 3D library. And then she also has to contend with the various virtual machines that are installed on various Windows operating systems. So she's sort of stuck. She's got a memory bug probably the worst kind of bug you would want to have. And she can't fix it. Moreover, it doesn't really have anything to do with the robot she's working with. It has to do with the operating systems that the testers are working with. So pretty much the only choice left to her is to hack in a workaround. I mean, the good news for her is that the hack goes in 
software that is essentially on the ground. It doesn't have to go into the robot. Still, it's a hacky workaround. It never feels good. But yeah, the, the problem I believe needs to be solved in the in the 3D libraries and in the image IO, it's the Java IO libraries that we're running on certain operating systems. The biggest step of fixing a bug is usually identifying what it is in the first place. And it's relatively easy to fix it once you find it. Sometimes the biggest step of all is to convince the people around you, hey, it was my fault. No, seriously, there's nothing I could have done. Well, I mean, some of it is like this whole like, hey, Tamar, can you load this KML file? Yeah, I can load this KML file. It works great. No, it doesn't. Oh, no, it, it really does. No, it doesn't. Look, this is your fault. This is So, you know, along with the, the bug came all this finger pointing. And, and I'm like, listen, I'm going to work really hard to solve this problem. But the fact that the memory is not being released on a certain operating system when it's called by another third party library, I feel that's not my fault. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you, when you have, um, I find that when you have like complicated bugs, I mean, I'm not saying that I'd never make bugs. Like a lot of bugs are my fault, right? But when you have bugs that a lot of people are depending on and they're in a pinch, they love to point fingers. It just like, it doesn't really help solve the bug. I don't know. I don't know. I just think a lot of people who go into software development aren't necessarily very skilled at interpersonal communication. A lot of that comes up when you when you have problems where, you know, when you have a complicated problem like this, it's really complicated and it's really confusing and there's a lot of pieces that go together and I feel that it would be really good to have people work together on this, you know, collaboratively instead of, you know, hey, this is your fault, you fix it. that I identified as much of the problem as I could, you know? I mean, I feel like the work that I've been doing to load the KML files and render them in 3D has been excellent work. And the work that I've done, you know, the turnaround time I did when I analyzed this problem and identified what was the source of the problem, I feel like that was good. And we have a workaround. So I'm completely satisfied with it. I think... Um, we actually have some meetings with some of the software developers on the on the third-party graphics library that we use, and I and I think it's more it's their job to fix this bug. You know, their 3D graphics library is supposed to work cross-platform on Java, and so I feel like it's on them. I think you know I think identifying the source of a bug is is nine tenths of of solving it, right? So if you identify it and it's not in your domain to fix, there's not a heck of a lot you can do. to Tamar Cohen from NASA Ames Research for sharing her story about robots, Java, and unfixable bugs.
Scott, robots, NASA. I mean, you can't ask for better fun than that. It's pretty it's pretty amazing. I mean, I always try to put stuff into perspective when I work with people and say, hey, you know, it's not like we're launching rockets and putting robots on Mars. So don't really worry about this little ASP.NET application. But uh, when you actually yeah, I mean, are putting a robot on Mars, you really should be pretty detail-oriented, I think. Yeah, I mean, when you find a bug and it has to do with a robot and stuck on Mars, you know, that's that's a couple billion dollars more, I don't know, that you could potentially lose. Well, but in, and in, in her case, this isn't even her bug. And that's the part that's so unbelievable is that I just had this image in my mind of somebody listening to the news. I mean, some random guy is listening to the news and it's like, yeah, the uh, Mars lander stuck on Mars, some kind of a Java bug in, in uh, system.io, whatever. And this guy is like, oh, no, that was me. And he's like, honey, I screwed up. I wrote, I mean, there's a guy out there who wrote the line of code that like ruined your life. <laughs> you were telling me a story earlier. Why don't you go ahead and tell it? Because that was pretty fascinating. So I worked in, in banking for for many, many years, like seven years, which in internet is like 49 years. And um, we were extremely paranoid about security. Um, we did online banking for lots of places. So when you go online and you check your bills and you pay your rent and you look at your check images online, that's that's probably us. There's a one in four chance that in the U.S. you're looking at some code that that me or one of my my guys worked on at the banking company that we worked at. And, you know, we were very, very proud of our work and it's all very exciting. Um, but the thing that we were the most paranoid about was security. And, you know, you just can't have people's personal banking information, you know, flying around the internet, you know. Please send me your credit card and email. You don't do that. It's just not done. And I was working on an, uh, a problem where I would take the front of a check image that came from a mainframe and then the back of a check image that came from a mainframe. And I, they wanted me to take the two images and combine them into a single image and then return that. And the idea was that the mainframe thought about front and back as separate images, but the web browser needed to just get one image. It was a, one of those silly requirements. So I emailed the bank that we were working with, and I said, hey, send me some test data. Because I'd been using, like pictures of Mario and Luigi and pretend checks. And I was like, you know, give me some kind of a check. Go get me whatever. I assume that they developed the system, so give me some test checks. So then they they email me uh, a picture of a check. And I look at the check and I'm like, wow, this is a really, you know, this is really good test data. It really looks like a check. Like a real guy's name and a real guy's signature. And I'm like, this is a, this is a real guy. They've mailed me an actual dude's check. I'm looking at some janitor's payroll check. I'm like, so I just put my hands up. I like, like, you know, when you're driving down the street and the cops, you see the cops and you kind of tense up a little bit because you're not sure. Maybe you did do something wrong. Maybe they are going to pull. Like, I don't think, I, I think that guy was still alive. I didn't kill that guy in Bermuda that time. So you just get that feeling like, oh no. So I put my hands in the air like, assume the position I just assumed the position all by myself in my office looking at a check in Outlook with the position assumed because I don't know what's happening now and I just go this is not good so I'm like do I use Kleenex now to pick up the phone so I don't get fingerprints on it so I 
call the security guys and I'm like, I've got customer data on my machine. And then, you know, those, um, those ceiling tiles that they have, like the little kind of foam ceiling tiles and all the American offices and the cubicles and stuff like ninjas descended from the security tiling in this and then just grabbed my laptop. They literally took my laptop away and they, they did what's called a chain of custody because they want to find out how many places has this this check been? Was it checked into source control or this person, this personal customer data? We need to know where it was from the moment that this guy sent it till, till now. Is it on any USB keys and yada, yada, yada? They take your laptop, they disassemble it, they use some kind of nuclear special wipey thing and they wipe the hard drive. Everything stopped. I mean, there's, I mean, this is called chain of custody, right? Customer data. You leave a laptop in your car with customer data on it, and, uh, you know, this is a big deal. And this is a bank. They take that seriously because there's federal regulations. And I, it wasn't my fault. I just opened the email. It was even worse than getting, like, a phishing attack or something because I didn't have to click on anything. The email just showed up, and then I go, oh, no. Scott Hanselman, what happens when trouble finds you? This has been episode number three of This Developer's Life. This podcast is sponsored by TechPub, purveyors of fine screencasts. If you want to learn something cool like Sinatra, ASP.NET MVC, Entity Framework, jQuery, Silverlight, Mercurial, Git, head on over to TechPub, watch a screencast, save a forest. My name is Rob Connery. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.